This is Jim Gardner with my podcast, More to Explore. I am anything but knowledgeable about classical music, but like so many kids, I took piano lessons for four or five years, and despite craving to learn to play music for the Broadway stage, my teacher, Mr. Hopper, I can't believe I still remember his name, insisted on Mozart, not the music man. My one brush with greatness, well, let's not get carried away, was when I played a portion of Dmitry Shostakovich's Piano Concerto in F Major with the Dalton School Middle School Orchestra in 1961. That's not me you're hearing. That's Dmitry himself. But that's the piece. Listening to it stirs the butterflies in my stomach that have been dormant for 62 years. If you're doing a podcast in Philadelphia, best you not wait too long to feature one of Philadelphia's real jewels. Maybe it's truly transcendent asset, the Philadelphia Orchestra. We recently stopped by as the orchestra was rehearsing the Brahms Symphony No. 1 for a performance that night. And when people from the four corners of the earth hear the name Philadelphia, they likely think not of the Eagles or the Phillies, but of the orchestra, affectionately called the Fabulous Philadelphians. That's the sound of a violin made in 1757 by J.B. Guadagnini in the brilliantly talented hands of concertmaster David Kim. So why is it that uh, it seems every world-class violinist has to play an instrument that was made almost 300 years ago? Well, I would say that every world-class violinist wants to play uh, a violin that was made, say, in the golden period of violin making, which was kind of central to northern Italy, late 1600s to mid-1700s. That was the golden period, and that's when Stradivarius lived, all his contemporaries, and um, they were just incredible. They are incredible works of art. And uh, nobody can, with all of modern technology, nobody can replicate the craftsmanship and the sound. And I think uh, many studies have come out, and part of the reason is the materials can't be matched. You can't have as pure as wood as, you know, they used to go to the river and find logs that were floating down the river and pull out a log. And But now there's, you know, there's chemicals, there's a lot of man-made material that has gone into everything. And so um, our varnish, the wood, all of that uh, is influenced. And so um, who knows, maybe it'll be another 300 years before they figure out how to do it. But there are some wonderful violins being made, contemporary instruments being made now, but they're just not the same. So, David Kim, <laughs> I am so pleased to have the chance to talk to you and have uh, you as uh, one of the first guests on our little venture here. Full disclosure, I have had the indescribable pleasure of playing golf with David twice, and we'll talk more about that in just a while. But, David, let's focus on David Kim and music for a bit. And for those who don't know you, you have been concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra since 1999, and you began your music career while in your mother's womb. 
True, correct. In, what, in utero. What, what is your said. journey? Tell me about your journey. Well, it's actually not that unfamiliar to a lot of my colleagues and uh, contemporaries. Basically, immigrant parents who came to this country from Korea in the early 60s to further their education. And then when my mother became pregnant with me, she decided, she was a pianist, a concert pianist. She said, I am going, well, her favorite instrument was the human voice, but there's no guarantee that your child is going to be born with that instrument. And so she said, well, what's the closest to that? violin. So when I was uh, still in mommy's tummy, uh, she decided I'm going to train this child to become a world-famous concert violinist. And so when I turned three years old, Santa Claus brought me a one-eighth size violin, and it was an incredibly intense childhood begun on day one. So by the time I was eight, I was studying with one of the great pedagogues of the 20th century, Dorothy DeLay, um, at the Juilliard School. no matter where we lived, Pittsburgh, South Carolina, Buffalo, I would fly on the weekends to take lessons, to attend Juilliard on the weekends. Um, and it was just an incredibly intense childhood. And there are my friends, many friends, even in the orchestra, have incredible stories like that, too. So when you say intense childhood, am I hearing that it wasn't a fun childhood? Yeah, I would have to say it was not fun. Um, the fun parts were the wonderful experiences I could have because I was a talented young violinist, like going to the Aspen Music Festival in Colorado for nine weeks every summer, or going to Juilliard and being with young, talented, driven kids mm-hmm. like myself. And we could complain about our similar parents who were all tiger parents, right. stage parents. Right. Um, but in terms of being a kid, this was, a lot of that. this was not your experience. Not a lot of that. Um, my mom truly felt like there's not much you need to do except play the violin, including sometimes like eating. Like she'd forget to feed me dinner. She'd say, you know, we would, I would be practicing five hours a day, including school, but then I never had to do homework. I never had to do chores. I never learn how to swim as a child. You know, all these things. My mom's like, well, what do you need to do? Balance a checkbook? You don't need to do that. It just play the violin and play it well, and then everything else will take care of itself. I'm trying to think what that must have been like. I had a father who said to me, having fun for the sake of fun is a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Everything you do must lead to something else. Um, he was talking about accomplishment. Even when I was a kid, yeah. you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And that had an impact on me really for the rest of my life and, and not necessarily a good one. Um, I'm wondering what kind of an impact. Forget about the fact for a second that you became a brilliant violinist. But what kind of an impact did that have on you uh, emotionally, psychologically? I'm still working through that, Jim, not really? to over-dramatize. The ramifications of all of that, of course, somehow slide generationally to the next next people in line, and that's my two daughters, our two daughters, right. Natalie and Maggie. And I remember once I said to one of them, I can't remember even which one, I was like, 
you don't have to get straight A's. You don't have to work so hard. We are giving you our permission for you to be a little mediocre because they would stay up all night studying and all this. And one of them looked at us and was like, do you think it's easy being your kid? (laughs) You know, like we feel the need to really excel because because of all of your accomplishments. Not what you say, but what who you you are, what you do. Right, the the values that you represent, the place you are now. You spent a long time in your young in your childhood and in your young adult life, um, motivated to, uh, compelled to, driven to become a world-famous soloist in the, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the mold of Yo-Yo Ma, uh, Yitzhak Perlman. Tell me about that, uh, that driven ambition and it didn't happen. I mean, it happened for a while, but... No, not to the level I was hoping. Well, t- tell me about that. Well, it's not just me, Jim. So many of my contemporaries at Juilliard, when we were all going to school, all of us thought we were the next Itzhak Perlman or it's next Yo-Yo Ma. All of us. And we were all waiting for that big break, or we were all waiting for that phone call or the the help from our mentor or, or from Dorothy DeLay, our teacher. Um, but... Um, you know, it was also a life of frustration because as a soloist, mm-hmm. I know for a fact that even people at the top level are insecure and thinking, well, gosh, uh, why is Yo-Yo playing four times with the Philadelphia Orchestra next next season? I'm, I just played with them last year, and I'm not playing with them until 2026. What, what's going on with that? What's... You know, that, that kind of stuff exists all over the place. How do I know? I've talked to these guys and shared a couple of drinks with them. I know. And that lifestyle is actually kind of torturous because we have no control over it. Um, there's a lot of kind of intangibles involved. <clears throat> I've heard you talk about that initially you were getting some really good gigs, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then after a while... The gigs were not quite as impressive. They weren't Philadelphia or Boston. They might have been Tonawanda, New York, <laughs> where I worked for a while. I know. Uh, and by the way, the Buffalo Philharmonic was a pretty, a pretty good second, third tier group. Oh, that was one of my best highlights. Absolutely. But but the gigs started drying up, and and your wife said to you, you know, maybe you've got to start thinking that you are a orchestral violinist. That was hard for you, wasn't it? Oh, I couldn't hear it. I was kind of like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm a I'm a soloist. I'm a I'm a prima donna. And so, yeah, it was uh and she was always very gingerly approaching that subject cuz she understood how fragile my ego and how large my ego was and she was surrounded by my friends and all of us were trying to go the same direction, the same path. So, um it wasn't really an orchestral career she was pushing me to. She understood that I needed my personality. I just needed to be kind of a little bit in the front or in the limelight. So she kept saying, what about a concertmaster position? Because even though she was never a classical musician, she had spent enough time around musicians to understand that, wow, this concertmaster thing is really awesome. Like, why not? How about a paycheck? How about 
all the good things that come along with being concertmaster. And it took me a while to come around, but once I did, boy, I, I, it made me wish, golly, why didn't I, why didn't I have this revelation a long time ago? And the thing was, I actually was so skeptical that I could win a job as concertmaster of a big five. Really? My wife would go down the list when we'd be sitting around and she'd say, well, how about New York? You know, because we knew that at some point these guys, these pre present concertmasters were going to t retire. And she'd say, well, how about New York? I'd say, oh, no way. Out of my league. How about Philadelphia? I remember her saying, how about Philadelphia? And that one I said, oh, forget it. No way in a thousand years is that going to happen. And then we, she would say, well, how about like Houston or Dallas or National in Washington, D.C.? or Minnesota, or Seattle. That seemed more realizable. And I said, that I'm going to go for. Absolutely. Cincinnati. You know, so many wonderful orchestras around our country. So how did Philadelphia happen? Well, they had been looking for their... My, my big predecessor is Norman Carroll. He retired after about 30 years. And they hired somebody else, but didn't work out. And then they had kind of interim. So it was a good three years gap in there and then they had several sets of auditions couldn't find anybody they really wanted so basically they started doing these kind of private invitation only auditions and the set that i got invited to were all the not all but many associate concert masters from around around the country and so you know for instance from minnesota orchestra from pittsburgh symphony i was in the dallas symphony as associate uh at the time? Yes, gotcha. for one season. And during that time, Philly called and said, this is after I was rejected when I applied just for an audition for Concertmaster previously. What was the auditioning process like? Had to be grueling, right? Oh, grueling. Just tons of music. Just so much music. Tons of symphonies and then all kinds of big solo pieces for me. And then... Um, and then... The, but the best part was it came down to two people, myself and another gentleman, and they asked us to come back like three years, uh, three three months after, and each do a trial periods. So I came back for two weeks, which included a Carnegie Hall concert, which included many concerts here, and that was really exciting. So tell me about the other gentleman whom you have said was a better violinist oh, than you were? Not even close. It's like, <laughs> like I'm like an amateur next to him. No kidding. And how is that possible? Oh, no, no. He, was, he is wonderful and a wonderful guy and my friend now. Um, he teaches at the Cleveland Institute of Music, one of the great conservatories in the world. And he teaches there. His wife teaches violin there. And he kicked my butt at the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow in 86. He won first. I won sixth. Uh, he's just so incredible, like really just amazing. And uh, I think that um, I keep thinking of the book um, of Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Oh, the 10,000 Hours of Practice. Right, but I think of the, the, the chapter where he's talking about um, Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, who designed the first atomic bombs. And how, when the U.S. government was looking to create that lab in Los Alamos, and they chose him over a few other scientists, physicists, who might have been slightly more smart in that field, nuclear physics, um, but he kind of had 
the people skills to smooth over a lab full of egos and, and tension and all that stress. And so he was given the job. And not that the other gentlemen that I was competing against lacked any of those things, but I think I am very much a people person. You, you and I play golf together. You know, like that, that kind of, kind of, that kind of unspoken kind of people stuff and nonverbal communication. I really excel at that, and I think perhaps they understood they needed that in a concertmaster. But your first ten years as concertmaster were challenging. Oh, yeah. In terms of your people skills, just what you said was your strength was a challenge for your first decade here. Absolutely, and that's all self-inflicted wounds. I was so stupid and full of piss and vinegar and ego, and I thought, all right, people, there's a new sheriff in town. I mean, it just got to me, and I just reacted poorly, and I acted like a jerk. I mean, not externally. People may not have known it, but my heart was not in the right place. I was browbeating people on stage, or I would ask them to go to coffee and talk to them about their attitude. You know, just absolutely out of character for Where me. Where did that come from, do you think? I'm not really sure. Maybe it was in there all along. But I just felt the need to, maybe it was just my inherent insecurity that I felt the need to assert myself in order to prove that I belonged in this. I Perhaps when I arrived, I saw quickly how incredibly challenging this job was going to be how nearly impossible it is to, 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 you know, not make mistakes along the way, and I was so insecure. And but that's okay. It's all it was all part of it. In my Walter Mitty moments, I think, man, I wish I could have skipped all that early junk and mistakes that I made, and people that I hurt their feelings, and and just kind of skip to what I know now, which is much more, I think, humble and kind of like, oh. I'm so sorry to all those people that I heard. You know, when I first came to Channel 6, I was told um, by my then boss, who had been my boss up in Buffalo, oh. um, uh, let's show them how, how we do this. So here I am, a 26-year-old kid from having worked in Buffalo, and I came down here and, you know, felt that I had a mandate to show them how to do this. New sheriff in town. Well, people did not take kindly to that. And it took years for that um, for that bad impression to wear off and for me to recognize that, uh, you know, that just was not the right way to do it. And I think when I became more secure, um, you know, I could be a, a nicer guy. And it sounds like, Something similar happened to you. <laughs> Absolutely. And I give a lot of credit to my wife, and I'm sure you do too. You know, the only person in the world who can really speak truth into our lives without fear of anything. They just blurt it out and say it with love. But that was really the key, is my wife and my faith, my Christian faith, but also my wife. But uh, as I said, it's a lot of self-inflicted and just immaturity. But you know, you might be able to say that you have to pass through that to get to where you are today. You know, it's uh, tough lessons that we all have to learn, but invaluable lessons. (laughs) 
As concertmaster, does that mean you're the best violinist in the orchestra? Oh, Jim, absolutely not. Um, especially in an orchestra like this. Just a historic ensemble. Maybe if I were in a smaller city, I might be able to say that as concertmaster. But in an orchestra like Philadelphia or Cleveland or Boston, you know, one of the big ones, ab- absolutely not. There's a, a wide range of incredible world-class talent sitting within three feet of me. I've, I've heard other interviews where you have talked about your faith and your Christianity. How does that impact on your music? Or, or does it impact on your music? Oh, it does. Uh, I mean, I really believe in my heart that being concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra is just about the greatest job a violinist can have in the world. The most kind of responsibility to be helps lead and steward the great Philadelphia Orchestra string sound. I don't know of anybody else who has that kind of responsibility and privilege. And so the pressure that goes along with that is inhuman, truly inhuman. And so I know for a fact that without uh, being able to just give it up to the Lord, at times I would just, I just get on my knees in this room and I just say, oh my God, literally my God, my Lord, I cannot do this tonight. I'm about to fall apart. You do it. And I just say, you do it because I can't. Or at Carnegie Hall, I will be on my knees if there's a big solo or something, and I'll just say, God, I can't do this. And there are countless times that has happened through my career and continue to. As you know, just because you're more experienced doesn't mean you stop getting nervous. Actually, it gets worse. (laughs) So you've been playing violin since you were three years old. Yes. What's the first piece that you remember learning that, that you can, obviously, I don't, I don't, mean to suggest that you can remember what you played when you were three, although maybe you do, uh, but how far back can you remember, and, and what's the first piece you remember learning? I think I can remember some student concertos written by, you know, Italian composers like Viotti and uh, Nardini, and these guys were probably lived in, I think, the 1800s? maybe early 1800s, and these are pieces that young students will learn before they learn the big ones like Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky um, and Beethoven. And so uh, I do remember playing those concertos when I was like six and seven. Um, So what I would play back then was one of the earliest serious concertos I played with the Mozart concerto in G major. Something like that. Um, When's the last time you played that? Oh, it's been years. Decades. <laughs> decades, really. Yeah. That's amazing. Many decades. That's amazing. That is just amazing that you remember. Nice violin, huh? How to play that. It has yeah. a real, like, oh, golden, it's gorgeous. golden sound. It's like driving a good car. You know, you barely have to touch the pedal and it just goes. <sighs> you, you mentioned to me once before that, that you are taken by your place in history with the Philadelphia Orchestra. When you got the job and you realized that you were the concert master of the orchestra that made Leopold Stokowski and Eugene Ormandy legendary names, how did you process that? I guess I'm still processing it, Jim. Um, 
I, I always use the analogy. I feel that the Philadelphia Orchestra is this magnificent train that is traveling through history. Um, not just within classical music, but, I mean, we travel around the world and we play in tribute when people pass, like the Queen, or when there's a tragedy or there's a, you know, anything that happens, we're a part of it. And um, I just feel like for a brief moment in that history, I'm just hopping on the train. I'm just trying to do the best job I can. Hang on, don't fall off. And then eventually I'm going to get off that train, and, but that train is just going to keep on going. And uh, so my goal is to try to do absolutely the best that I can with the most integrity while I am a passenger on that train. But the day is fast approaching when I will hop off and I can just hopefully look back and say, wow. I did the best that I can. I just tried the best. You talk about the responsibility of being concertmaster. Yo-Yo Ma does not have that kind of responsibility. He's responsible only for himself. You're responsible for other musicians, for a legacy that is sacred, not only in Philadelphia, but throughout the world of classical music. Um, It's just an extraordinary experience. It is. As I said to you, Jim, um, apart from being a father and a husband, it's the greatest privilege of my life, easily, by far, is being concertmaster, serving as concertmaster. And that's the key word, serving as concertmaster of this incredible ensemble. You mentioned stars. Sometimes the stars are really the music directors, the conductors, the faces of a given orchestra. And in the 24 years that you have been concertmaster, you have worked with Wolfgang Savalish, Christoph Eschenbach, uh, Chief Conductor Charles Dutois, and of course, now Music Director Yannick Nézé Seguin. Is that like an NFL quarterback who plays for different coaches? There's different styles, different systems, different, um, uh, you know, personalities, different vocabularies. That's got to be tough. Well, um, that's why... To answer your question, short answer is yes, it is tough, but it is exactly like um, Tom Brady having different head coaches. Or it it is basically um, a new regime with each conductor, and there is certainly a change in the, the way we make music, the way we make sound, produce sound, and. Um, it's uh, up to all of us to adjust. We just have to do it. It's, uh, that's our job. Our job is not to create the interpretation, although it happens just naturally, but in, on a really basic level, we have to do what the conductor wants. You can read about the Philadelphia Orchestra going back decades And the one thing that is common to all descriptions about the orchestra is the so-called Philadelphia sound. Is that real or is that myth? Oh, it's real. How do I know? Because I have asked all the big soloists when they come through, like I've asked Yo-Yo and I've asked uh, the pianist Garrick Olson and Emmanuel Axe and so many, and they say, absolutely. Uh, They say that every orchestra has their kind of style of playing, their color, their tone, their sound world, as it were. Uh, Chicago is known for their brass sound. Uh, Boston is a little lighter and fluffier, more French style. 
but Philadelphia is known as the most, I guess you could say, high cholesterol sound. Our sound is full of fatty lipids and all. The, it's like the, all the be- stuff that's bad for that's you. It's an artistic life. way of describing. Yeah, yeah, it. like red, the deep red wine, or and foie gras and caviar and all these things that have lots of fat in it and heavy cream. That's the Philadelphia Orchestra sound. But also, again, it comes down to the conductors and Stakowski, Ormandy. They love the rich, romantic sound that they were getting. And that became our calling card. They like, they like the red meat. Is that's right. Exactly. <laughs> they wanted high cholesterol. <laughs> Uh, April 16th, 2011, Philadelphia Orchestra became the first major U.S. orchestra to file for Chapter 11. How hard was that on the players? That was one of the most stressful and horrible moments of my entire life. Probably because when you win a position in one of these big orchestras, you think you're set for life. Even more than if you got a job in a smaller orchestra. I mean, there's many, many orchestras in many different towns. But when you get to these big orchestras, the salaries are the biggest, the benefits are the best. There's touring all over the world. There's recording, all this stuff. And you think, I have hit the money. I've hit the big time. And suddenly when they say, we're filing for bankruptcy protection, I mean, it just rocked our world. I want to go back for one second to talk about these different music directors and conductors. Um, The shortest tenure of a conductor, that's how most people recognize these individuals, was Christoph Eschenbach. And and it was something of a surprise that he was here for one contract cycle, I believe. Um, And when he came with much fanfare, because he was a big name, uh, everybody thought this was going to be a brilliant stroke for the Philadelphia Orchestra. Didn't turn out that way. What happened? Well, Jim, as you know, everything in life is about relationships and chemistry, and the chemistry just was not there. And that is only my opinion. Uh, as concertmaster, as an audience member, as a supporter, I just felt like the, the chemistry was not there between him and the musicians, the orchestra, and also between him and the audience. I didn't feel that warmth and affection right away and and not reverence, but just like lifting our music director up, like, wow, that kind of feeling. Um, And just for whatever reason, it just wasn't there. And it's not a tragedy. I mean, it just, it happens. Marriages dissolve relationships dissolve, people are estranged from their parents, their siblings. It just happens. Let's go to the other side of that same coin. It seems that the relationship between the orchestra and Yannick Nézé-Séguin and the audience and Yannick Nézé-Séguin is um, spectacular. Would that be the right way to characterize it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's, it's not an accident that he's staying here until 2030 at least. Uh, I'm hoping it's a lifetime appointment after that. Why, why is he so good for the orchestra, for you? Why is he so good for David Kim? Well, um, first of all, he's just a tremendous musician. I mean, just 
nuts and bolts. He is a great musician. So I am learning all the time in rehearsal. I find that when I give workshops at Juilliard and Curtis and all these places, I find myself quoting him and copying him and mimicking him. I just can't help it. He's got so much influence on me. Um, And then um, he is a child of the 21st century, no question. He's on social media. He's... um, He's got tattoos. He's just, he's cool. He's got, got a blue. great smile. And, and that oh, may yeah. sound frivolous, but it's not. You know, people oh, yeah. warm up to a great smile. Absolutely. He just can charm the pants off of an audience. He can, uh, he, he just knows what to say in each situation. He can be, he's like, like a president. He can comfort when that is needed. He can celebrate when that's needed. You know, he just has that sixth sense of how and when to speak to the audience. And um, that's huge in classical music. It's a must. I'm curious about something. Do you ever come off the stage of a concert and and say to yourself, that was a bad performance. I didn't play well just now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really? Oh, yeah. That's why I have like 17 bottles of booze in my locker right here. (laughs) I drown my sorrows. So you're capable of playing poorly? Is that a word that's relevant? Sure, sure. And it's, it has a lot to do with shame. Like, if I were in a room alone and I played poorly, I could forgive myself really easily, as we all do in our lives when we do make mistakes or do boneheaded things. But it's in front of my colleagues, all of these amazing musicians that I respect so deeply. When I mess up in front of them, I just want to crawl into a hole. That's where I feel the embarrassment. I don't quite understand. How are you capable of not playing well that may sound like a silly question but i look at someone like you and my assumption is you're brilliant every time you you know you put bow to strings but you're saying that's not true well it can be a couple of things one is it could be it could be a very busy week let's say that we just returned from china i'm a little jet lagged and then we had a concert in carnegie hall on tuesday and we came back at one in the morning and then we have a new program on wednesday unfamiliar music i'm just not quite prepared it could be I'm just kind of tripping over notes, and I, it could be something as simple as that. It could be I'm concerned. My, my, one of my children is depressed about something. You know, as you know, if, if you're, you're only as happy as your most unhappy child. And so I could be mentally a million miles away, and I miss a couple of things, or I kind of look like I'm dialing it in on stage. That's a failure. That's a lose right there. So um, those are the things that I'm talking about. Though that would, I would consider a bad night. I want to talk for just a little while about something that's really important, uh, and that is gender and racial equity in uh, in orchestras in general and in Philadelphia uh, in in specific. In 2016, so the situation might be improved at this point, but the League of American Orchestras reported that African Americans made up 1.2 percent of large orchestras like the Philadelphia, Hispanic, Latino, 1.6 percent, Asian Pacific Islander, 9.3 percent. What can be done to diversify American orchestras because they are not now? We are kind of in a period right now that the PGA Tour, the Golf Association, was in maybe uh, 30, 40 years ago, where 
there were just no minority members. And it all starts in childhood. Um, it's expensive to be a musician, to get to where we are as musicians. It takes so much resource and sacrifice on the part of parents. I mean, literally, it's not exaggerating saying it takes mortgage, second mortgages, personal loans, grandparents helping out. Um, you know, it costs hundreds of dollars for one hour of instruction. It's like being a, a figure skater preparing for the Olympics. You know, ice time is so valuable. And then they have a coach and then they have a nutritionist and then they have a sports psychologist. It's kind of the same thing with us. So the basic thing that we need to do is help to promote classical music in schools for younger people in areas that are underserved. But again, my parents sacrificed everything, including having more children. They, they did, they ref, my mother refused to have another child because she said that will be a distraction, not only to our attention and our efforts, but financially. So I'm an only child, you know, that kind of thing. Say that to a family of five from in their inner city right. and somebody wants to suddenly, you know. It should be noted, however, David, that in terms of playing compositions by non-white composers, Philadelphia leads the big five orchestras. I, I would imagine that you're aware of this. Uh, by impressive margins, Philadelphia plays 19% uh, of its programming uh, compositions by non-white authors compared to, and I have these numbers, 15% Boston, 10% Cleveland, 9% Chicago, and shockingly, 7% in New York City, where you would think, uh, you know, New York would uh, be, um, uh, you know, devoted to the notion of minority music, uh, a diverse program, if you will. Why do you think this is, that Philadelphia is, is leading the pack? Does that have something to do with Yannick and his Absolutely. Uh, commitment to all of this? His vision, his drive, his absolute unbending commitment to diversify, to give exposure to wonderful composers who just, for one reason or another, just never had the exposure before, um, underrepresented communities. He is absolutely... 1,000% committed to it, and that's and he has this incredible instrument, the Philadelphia Orchestra, in the palm of his hand, and so he's not shying away. David Kim is an avid golfer, and he and I have played together a couple of times, and let me just say this. If someone needs to find the exact center of the fairway, you just look for David Kim's ball. <laughs> you are hilarious, no, but It's true. You know well, it's true. I can drive the ball, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so is there a connection between your golf and your music, or is golf just an escape from your music? Well, obviously, we are a golf family. You know, my wife grew up playing golf and was a serious golfer. I love golf and everything. I think the connection is, uh, for me, it's a great way for me to be able to spend time with our important patrons, our board members, mm -hmm. many of whom are avid golfers who are members of great clubs in our area. I mean, you know, this is a hotbed of golf, cor golf courses in Philadelphia. But then for me, it's the opposite also. Uh, after all the pressure of being 
first chair of this orchestra, to be able to just go out and forget about everything and be outdoors for four hours is just so great with friends and joking around. And I just love to forget about everything. And that's why also I love mundane things at home. I love doing laundry. I love doing the dishes. Ask my family, they'll tell you, oh, he's always doing laundry and always doing dishes, always cleaning. I like things that give me an immediate result with no discussion about artistic ramifications or uh, choices or anything like that. I just like doing things. Just, and I've talked to a lot of other people who are under pressure in their jobs, same thing. I just put on loud funk music and start washing dishes. And when I'm done, I feel like, yes, I accomplished something well. Nobody was judging me. I don't feel like, well, tonight was a little off night. The dishes are not quite clean enough. No. I just get my job done, good, on to, on to laundry, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, look, w- what is there left for you to do and to accomplish as a musician? And I, I apologize for asking you this, but uh, 24 years as concertmaster, can you see beyond your current place of honor with the Philadelphia Orchestra? Oh, absolutely, and I'm already thinking about it now. Um, it seems to Do you me... want to make a little news here and, and, and tell me when no. this might happen? No, no. <laughs> I don't want them to get any ideas over here like, oh, great, he's finally, he's leaving. No. <laughs> let's, uh, start, let's start the search. Yeah, exactly. Right? I don't want to be the lame duck. But it seems like 30, around 30 years might be about the kind of average shelf life for concert masters. So we're talking another five, six years for you. Maybe, yep. David, it has been not just a delight, but an honor to have this opportunity to talk to you, for, you know, for this length of time. Uh, you are generous, you are kind, and uh, you're fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. The honor is all mine, coming from your friend, but also a huge fan. So I'm, I'm such so honored to have been included, and thank you so much for, for this time together. Will you permit me a personal anecdote? I was 26, just starting my first TV reporting job in Buffalo, when I was assigned to cover the presentation of that upcoming year's program by the Buffalo Philharmonic. Buffalo was an excellent second-tier orchestra headed by a very young Michael Tilson Thomas, who would go on to become one of the world's leading musicians for half a century. Sadly, he is now undergoing treatment for brain cancer. I have no memory of the program he introduced, but an awkward exchange between him and me, well, how could I forget? The Buffalo Philharmonic played before half-empty audiences in Kleinhand's music hall, and so I asked him if it was the responsibility of the music director, in other words, him, to be a public face and promote the orchestra to fill the house. He gave me a look of utter disdain and said something to the effect of, I'm a musician not a ticket salesman. Perhaps I should have left it there. But I had the temerity to say that in New York, Leonard Bernstein was everywhere, on TV, on the sides of buses, on billboards, promoting the New York Philharmonic. And so I asked if the great Bernstein could do it in New York, couldn't he do it in Buffalo? To which the 29-year-old maestro stood up, declared the news conference over, turned his back, and walked out. The other members of the assembled media stared at me in disbelief as if to say, was that necessary? I apparently thought it was a reasonable question and still do. 
Nevertheless, Michael, it is a little late, but please accept my apology. Jim Gardner, More to Explore is a production of Jim Gardner, LLC and 6ABC Philadelphia. The uniquely talented Matteo Iadonisi and I produced and edited this podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and also tell a friend. Word of mouth is a great way to help podcasts grow. I'm Jim Gardner.